to Flora and Friends, your botanical cup of tea, a podcast for plant lovers of any kind. We welcome guests to our botanical tea break to explore the history, science and meaning of plants for our lives. My name is Judith Lundbeil-Felten. I'm a plant scientist, university researcher and founder of Flora L Design and I'm the hostess of your botanical cup of tea. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Pelagonium series of the Flora and Friends podcast. Today I will share with you the first half of an interview that I have had with Matthias Delic, who is the chairman of the International Geraniaceae Group. Matthias is also a professor in heritage science and analytical chemistry in the UK and in Slovenia but a big, deep and long-eared free-time passion for him have been the Pelagonium. And that's why Mattia has traveled a lot to South Africa, discussed and even worked in his free time together with botanists there to learn more about Pelagoniums. And he's extremely knowledgeable and it was it's, uh, extremely nice to talk to him. And his uh, knowledge has inspired so many questions that I recorded a very long episode and decided to cut it into two so that you will be able to enjoy the second part next week on Wednesday. In this first part, we have discussed a bit about how um, Matthias found into the Pelagoniums and this interest, how it has developed for him, um, but also how Pelagoniums are um, classified into different sections and which kind of pelagoniums you can find in different parts of the world. And then next week we are going to address a little bit more uh, climate change and anthropogenic activities and how those are impacting pelagoniums as well as some more information about the uh, International Geraniaceae Group and resources about pelagoniums. I hope you will enjoy both parts of this interview and with this I say welcome to Matija Stelic from the International Geraniaceae Group. Thank you Judith, um, thank you very much for your invitation. You are, you're a professor in, and have a science background, but how did your enthusiasm for pelagoniums start? Where did it start, how did it start and how did you grow from there? I tried to analyze this with myself, to be honest, uh, several times, but never quite uh, understood how this enthusiasm developed. Uh, like many young people, 30, 40 years ago, I was enthusiastic about plants generally. And I uh, remember gardening with my grandmother and how smelly those pelargoniums were that she used to grow. And I can't remember where, whether I really liked that smell at the time, to be honest. Um, and then I fell for cacti and succulent plants and suddenly discovered that there is a whole wealth of botanical pelargoniums that very few people knew much about. And that nostalgically took me back to the plants that my grandmother grew. 
So I think the, the nostalgia combined with my interest in unusual shapes and forms that polargoniums provide in abundance. And I think that's where I got really hooked. Mm -hmm. How long have you been growing them for? That's a very good question. I think very intensively, probably for the past 25 years. Okay. And did you, what is, what is your collection of pelagoniums like today? Uh, today, it looks half dead, to be honest. <laughs> um, but a lot of the plants, as you know, um, have two very distinct uh, active periods. They usually have a green period, which is when they uh, grow leaves and be become really active during the winter. And then uh, towards the end of the winter, early spring, when the uh, hot weather starts, the leaves uh, wither. And then during the spring and during the summer, they start flowering. These are the so-called uh, winter-growing pelargoniums. And they are pretty much in, in the majority. And very few people who don't, um, I mean, a, a few people who don't have a good understanding of how to grow pelargoniums get this aspect wrong. They don't really quite understand which plants come from winter rainfall regions, which ones come from summer rainfall regions. And if you mix this up, um, very often plants will not grow well and may die. Uh, so right now, half of my plants are at the stage where their leaves have, st have started to wilt, and the other half are firmly at the peak of their flowering period. So it's just an absolute pleasure to come back from work, get immediately into the greenhouse, and just enjoy yourself. Mm. Do you have a heated greenhouse? Well, I uh, my, my collection is in Ljubljana, Slovenia. So uh, typically we get a couple of days during the winter of minus 15, minus down to minus 17 degrees. And there are no pelargoniums that would survive such low temperatures. Mm. There are a few from the central Karoo that can survive temperatures down to minus 10, minus 8 degrees but usually not for a very long period of time. These would be very cold winter mornings when uh, you get those low temperatures. But then immediately as the sun shows up, the entire landscape warms up and uh, the, the ground rarely actually freezes over. So um, you will get pelargoniums that, um, that survive, say, one or two freezing nights, nights of freezing temperatures, but cannot grow in very long, during very, very long periods of freezing weather, except a species that grows in central Anatolia in Turkey. Um, your listeners may know that the, the genus is distributed all the way from Turkey over over the Rift Valley and then into South Africa with a few species in Australia and New Zealand. But those that grow in central Turkey survive at very, very high altitudes and covered with a thick layer of snow during the winter. So those can survive even long winters in the northern hemisphere. 
Okay, they would be perfect for growing in Sweden then. <laughs> there are a few uh, a few growers, enthusiasts in Sweden who successfully grow them outdoors. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely mm -hmm. right. Yeah, well, how many species do you have in your collection? The uh, the collection is uh, is 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 growing as we um, as we exchange seeds and and plants with uh, with our colleagues, and um, right now I think I grow about 150 species or so out of possibly 280 300 species in the genus as a whole. There are a few species that are difficult to come across because they are not horticulturally very interested, interesting and that basically grow like weeds. So very few people are interested in those except a few botanists um, and it's, it's difficult to come across uh, seeds of those. Uh, the rest of the species are, are really interesting. Either they grow into large shrubs and, and flower profusely, um, such as the well-known um, zonale group of species, uh, section pelargonium. And then there is a large group of species that grow in arid regions of South Africa, Australia and elsewhere. And those are of interest to succulent enthusiasts. So uh, those are, again, a little bit easier to come across. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we can go back to this uh, aspect of classification. What kind of classification is used? What it is based on? What would you say as having been in touch with pelagoniums? So from a, from a purely botanical perspective, um, the genus is divided into sections. Uh, the sections are based on, or clustering into sections, is based on morphological and genetical characteristics. And some of them make a lot of sense to horticulturalists, others perhaps slightly less. But um, the majority of those sections are pretty easily recognizable. For example, section Peristera is the section with weedy, um, Uh, species types that are rarely grown in collections, actually. Um, section Huarea is the, is the section with, uh, with, very, uh, with thick tubers with, uh, uh, that are shielded by a papery tunic, and those are grown by, for example, succulent enthusiasts. Uh, then there are sections Otidia and Cortusina that have very thick stems, um, and, and similarly, other sections can be, can be recognized on the basis or, of morphology or, or flower shape or number of fertile stamens and, and similar. This is botany. From a horticultural perspective, it is most usual or most useful even to divide species into summer growing and winter growing species. The majority of um, cultivars that are grown on windowsills world around um, are descendants of two or three species, such as Pelargonium zonale and similar. And these are all summer growing species, which is why they do so well as summer plants. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, the majority of species in the genus actually come from areas with winter rainfall. These are areas that extend from Luderitz in South Namibia 
all the way down along the Atlantic coast of uh, Western South Africa, um, around Cape Town, and then in along the south coast of Western Cape and Eastern Cape towards Port Elizabeth. So this is a fairly broad, perhaps 200 kilometer ribbon of land that mainly receives rain in the winter, uh, in, 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 during winter, uh, but may receive uh, scant rain year-round as well. These plants require slightly different horticultural conditions, so high levels of uh, sunlight during winter, and obviously uh, rain or, or watering during winter time as well. These are slightly more difficult to grow in the Northern Hemisphere, for example, especially because very often we need to provide slightly more uh, sunlight or artificial lighting, if we can, to grow them well. Okay, that was a, a great classification. I think that's something that I now can, I can relate to. Um, and also, I think we discussed that in the very first episode um, about the pelagoniums that, for example, if one wants to cross pelagoniums, um, one needs to stay into, in the same section. Of pelagoniums is is that Often, true? but not not entirely true. Um, some of the members of our international geraniaceae group have been doing really interesting uh, experiments, uh, producing crosses between sections. Okay. So, for example, one of the latest super super exciting crosses was between. Um, for example, Pelargonium oblongatum uh, from the Hoarea geophytic section with uh, Pelargonium, um, with, with a very tall shrubby Pelargonium from the section Pelargonium. Um, so that was a, a hugely surprising cross. I think some, some of the individual species within some of the sections are, 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 are such such extreme examples of their genetics that they can still cross and with a species from other sections. And, mm -hmm. and those are the really interesting examples. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, do, you do, do you do any crossing or do you try to keep your pelagoniums as pure as possible? Um, I enjoy looking at crosses and I think they tell us an awful lot about relationships between sections and species, but um, I, I, I don't do any hybridization myself. Mm -hmm. um, it's not because I'm a purist or anything, but there are 300 species as it is. And in addition, each taxon comes with so many of its own variability that I decided to specialize myself to try and keep them as pure as possible. Because what I enjoy mostly is to look at the same species, but from different locations. Because if you look at species that are very broadly distributed, for example, Pelargonium luteolum, and then you start looking at the characteristic of characteristics of that one species in uh, in the Western Cape, and then in the Southern Cape, and then in the Eastern Cape, you start seeing very interesting patterns that have never been systematically studied before. And that really excites me. Mm. What can this pattern consist of? 
For example, Pelargonium luteolum uh, is a very curious species. It has a it has a sister species called Pelargonium gracilimum, and where these two species meet, um, the yellow flowers that are typical of Pelargonium luteolum and the pink flowers that are typical of Pelargonium gracilimum actually turn into white flowers that can be either of the two species. But the research that I've done in the past few years has also shown that the nectar tubes that are typically slightly shorter in Pelargonium luteolum start becoming longer and longer as you move eastwards until you get to the typical Pelargonium gracilimum. But once you start moving slightly, ever slightly more east, those longer hypanthia, the, the, the nectar tubes, start becoming shorter and the petals yellow again. So this really questions us and really questions our understanding of the two species. Is it really two species or is it really just varieties of the same species that have evolved and uh, adapted to specific pollinators? Mm, there is an awful lot of research here still be done. That was my next question about the pollinators. Is there anything known that the pollinators are very different if the nectar tubes are so different in length? Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. And there's uh, there's quite a lot of ongoing research um, on this topic. In fact, uh, a couple of years ago when we still traveled to South Africa, one of the most interesting days that I spent with a couple of botanists was trying to catch flies in the Northern Cape because those flies has, have awfully long proboscis, the, the, the tongues, if you like. Um, and some of those nectar tubes can be up to 11 centimeters long. So the length of that proboscis can be five times the length of the fly. The, the, these are enormously interesting creatures to look at. Um, and of course, the length of those uh, flower tubes um, co-evolved with the length of the proboscis of the flies. And there are species pairs, i.e. fly and plant, that evolved together. And understanding those mechanisms of evolution is extremely interesting and tells us a lot about the process of speciation in many South African plants, not just pelargoniums. Mm -hmm. that, that's uh, fascinating, fascinating how this, uh, how it can be so small distances that make such a difference. But also, I mean, if, if we look at South Africa, I have unfortunately never been there, but looking at the map, one can see there's many different types of landscapes. You have the lowlands, you have mountains, where do we find pelargoniums there and are they very are they very different species depending on the different types of landscapes um, yes you're absolutely right um, plus let's not forget we have two oceans the warm indian ocean and the cold atlantic so together with the geology and, and surface morphology uh, which is extremely dynamic and you mentioned very tall mountains and very fertile and very wet valleys that, uh, that slowly descend into the central Karoo, which is very flat and dry, mainly. Not, not, not all of the Karoo is like that, but uh, some of it is. 
Um, South Africa provides for an immense diversity of habitats. And from valley to valley, you can get completely different morphologies, completely different populations of species. And it is very often the case that you have certain species that are so highly specialized that they only occur in a, in a small area of, say, five by five kilometers. Um, and with South Africa being so huge, there are so many areas potentially that we still haven't discovered. Um, and on an annual basis, we get reports of new species being discovered. So this is, this is just an absolutely interesting area of research for, for botanists. Um, due to all this diversity, you have the, the tall shrubby species that occupy the south of, of this distribution area. So along the southern coast with, uh, with the warm uh, weather provided by the Indian Ocean, lots of humidity, um, fairly uh, higher rainfalls. But as you move northwards along the Atlantic coast and, and cold winds and winter rainfall, um, you get lower rainfalls as well. So the species had to adapt and became smaller. So you have those really miniature geophytes that, that you will find in the Namaqualand. And then as you move a little bit northwards, you get large and tall shrubby and succulent species that survive on 100 or 200 millimeters of rain a year. So real desert survivors like no other. Um, so, and, and that has just always fascinated me to no end. This has been now, uh, <laughs> this has been brought so many follow-up questions to me. <laughs> now I need to hear, organize my thoughts. Um, one of them is you seem to have traveled to all these places. Is, it, is this true? If I, if I only can, pandemic permitting, I, I travel to South Africa every, every year. I mostly travel in our northern summer, meaning that I can only see pelargoniums in leaf in the winter, uh, which many botanists dislike because pelargoniums typically start flowering in the spring. Uh, but I've trained my eye such that I can, I can see pelargoniums even if they're not flowering. And um, that allows me to see surprisingly a lot um, because in order to see a pelargonium when it flowers, you have to be there while it flowers. Um, and the flowering period of several species is limited to two or three weeks. But if I'm there in the winter and I see them in leaf, I can see all of them. Mm -hmm. So it, I get to see a lot more than those people who only travel in, say, December or January or February when when, when pelargoniums typically flower. Because I, I teach, I can only travel in July or August. Or August. So, um, so I only get to see plants uh, during their winter time. Yeah, that challenge has been a real opportunity for you to learn to distinguish them while they don't flower. I think so, I think so. Mm -hmm. And um, the, it, it's really quite amazing to see, and I've never, and I've never seen pelargoniums in flower, 
at least those that flower in spring or summer, in nature. And it's an absolute delight to see, to see pictures of plants from nature in flower because that's not how I remember them. I remember the landscape green and lush and, and you know, full of plant life. Uh, but when they decide to flower, it's all half dead. Mm. And it's a completely different landscape. And it's, um, I think it's so fascinating that you you say there's such an interest in the botany of these plants. Is this is this special for Pelargonium, or is this just like a genus of any other that is very interesting? Or yeah, I think, and and this is just my observation as a non-botanist. Obviously, I, I think the peak of interest in the genus was probably in the 1980s and 90s with the real greats being Professor van der Waalt, for example, or Professor Marais, who did an awful lot of research into this genus and uh, described many new species, published monographs, PhD theses, and, and so on. Um, the interest then waned slightly. We, we see a lot of interest in other genera currently, for example, various uh, monocots and similar. Uh, there has always been lots of interest in, in succulents because of the market, I suppose. Um, but right now, I wouldn't see that the genus is particularly popular, at least in South Africa. And, and, I'm, not and I'm not critical here at all, but for example, the, the really great collections of living pelargoniums in Stellenbosch at the University Botanical Garden there, um, those collections have really declined since the 90s, for example. Um, I, th I think this is quite usual because curators have their own interests and botanists have their own interests. But I think that in the in the last perhaps five or 10 years, the interest increased again, particularly because of the subject that you already mentioned, which is pollination studies. Pelargoniums have become, again, a little bit more interesting because of their longer nectar tubes. And that has put them firmly into the focus of researchers interested in pollination studies. Uh, not as a genus of its own, but as a genus of of plants that enable long proboscid flies uh, to, to gather nectar. And um, we've seen a lot of recent research into the particular issue of long-tubed pelargonium pollination. This was the first of two parts of the interview with Mattia. Next Wednesday, we are going to discuss more about climate change and how human activities are impacting pelargoniums. And you will also get a few tips where to go to South Africa if you want to see lots of fa fantastic uh, pelargoniums. And finally, Mattia will also talk more about the International Geraniaceae Group and how you can get resources and more information from them. 
With this, I want to say thank you for today. If you haven't listened to the other episodes on Pelagonium or our previous mini-series on Nasturtium, visit us at www.flora-l.com forward slash blog and find all episodes there as well as on our YouTube channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Deezer where you can listen to this podcast. If you are on our website and would like to keep yourself informed about future episodes or other news about Flora L, then sign up for our newsletter. Thank you for listening today. Have a great day and I hope to see you back here next week. 